I think it's a question that um, is important in ecology and evolution and is kind of underlying. That shouldn't some stop of this us discussion. from hand waving wildly, though. I think that's totally fair game. Welcome to episode 002 of Major Revisions. This week we're going to revisit 100 questions in ecology. I also want to talk about possible Nobel Prizes in ecology. With me as always is Grace Wilkinson from the... Where are you from? You're from here still, right? I, I, I say that I'm a, a current postdoc and a professor-elect. Professor-elect. <laughs> <laughs> so with us as always is Professor-Elect Grace Wilkinson of the University of Virginia, soon-to-be Iowa State University, and also from the University of Kansas, John Walter. Hi guys, how are you doing? Doing great, doing well. how are you? I was going to put something, stup- something stupid in there, like, and on this week, like, Grace is going to give us her fantasy football picks, and John's going to provide a new review of the latest Bon Iver album. But um, that would actually make for really compelling radio if you guys did that, because I think Grace is winning pretty hardcore in that league. <laughs> uh, maybe not this week. Yeah. But yes, I would like to hear your thoughts on the new Bonnie Bear album. I like it, but that's just me. He caught some yeah. flack for that statement about, uh, what's her name? Beyonce. But I like it. John, do you have opinions on the new Bonnie Bear album? I haven't heard it yet. I actually wasn't even aware that he had a new album. That's the cutting analysis that people tune in for. <laughs> yeah, I'm behind the times. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah, maybe we shouldn't comment on pop culture things. <laughs> At least don't ask me to. What, what's your what's your latest pop culture reference, John? Like, where are you at in things? Because I've made this joke like since I had kids and then started grad school. That as far as movies are concerned, I'm only caught up to about the year 2008-2009. So I'm kind of chronically behind things. Well, I'm still trying to catch my fiancé up on the original Star Wars trilogy. That's a noble pursuit. if that speaks to... (laughs) If that speaks to my own level of (laughs) pop culture knowledge, uh, it's it's really just just all bad, no matter which way you slice it. Thanks to the sheer amount that I drive and that I'm kind of in a lab i'm reasonably caught up on music but that's about it like nothing else no no tv or you know books or anything of relevance yeah i just started watching veronica mars this week and i think that show went off the air in 2006 i've never even heard of that show so maybe i'm further behind than i thought i did i did read the first book of game of thrones which i think came out in like 1990 or something i'm not real sure on that maybe the 80s yeah I'm concerned by how far behind I am generally in pop culture. And then I've been told that pop culture things don't come to Iowa until they're about three or four years old. <laughs> and so I'm going to be really far behind. Or you might be ahead. That's true standards. because culture is all cyclical, right? That's, yeah. Yeah. Let's see. I, I noticed between working in Richmond and, and Charlottesville going back and forth that it seems like Richmond is at least six months ahead of Charlottesville in many respects about things. And so, they really want you to know it, too. Oh, my gosh. They're so much more hip. 
and yeah. in, in touch with things. And hello to all of our listeners in Richmond. Yes. <laughs> hey, we have eight entire followers on SoundCloud, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Which, granted, we haven't really technically released this, so by the time people hear that. Oh, which we should mention, we have a website now. Grace, tell us about the website. Yeah, our website is majorrevisions.weebly.com, and on the website you can find all of our episodes, learn a little bit more about us, but most importantly, whenever we mention different articles, blogs, or other podcasts on the show, you can find links to all of that material on the website. So go ahead and go check it out, and it'll be updated on a regular basis with our episodes and that information. We are also on Twitter now. We are major underscore revisions, and we'll start picking that up here soon, getting more. I guess that's where we officially kind of release things, and look forward to hopefully some 3 or 4 a.m. rants from John when the cats or the dogs rather wake him up and He's just generally grumpy with the world. The world cannot wait. All right, so which one did you guys want to do first? Do you want to do, do you want to revisit the discussion, or do you want to knock out Nobel Prizes? Let's talk about Nobel Prizes. Who wants to go first? Well, I guess we should kind of preface this a little bit, um, that the Nobel Prizes have been announced this week, and of course there isn't one given in an ecology or environmental science directly related field um so we we thought about what um who could get a nobel uh for ecology uh what kind of the criteria um would be in place for such an award and um yeah so why so, don't why don't we we so yeah john correct me if i'm wrong that. but nobel prizes are often awarded for a concept, an idea, or something that was groundbreaking, and it's awarded to individuals, but it's for a concept or idea, correct? Yes. So the one so far this year, the one in physics, is for theoretical discoveries of topological phase transitions and topological phases of matter. I have no idea what that means. Um, And the one for chemistry is for the design and synthesis of molecular machines. I know at least all the words in that sentence. <laughs> Physiology is for discoveries of mechanisms of autophagy. Oh. That sounds cool, I guess. So, John, what was your pick? I wasn't successful in narrowing down to a specific person, but I thought that, you know, for me, the criteria would be for a, uh, for a discovery um, or a body of work that advances fundamental concepts in ecology, but also has important applied significance either um, through, you know, sort of a direct consequence or, you know, from the work that builds on that concept, you know, so these might be things related to environmental challenges like invasive species or carbon sequestration, um, you know, water, water quality, water use, um, things like that. And Jeff, how about you? So I thought a lot about this and I tried to think about, I kind of went back and forth and ended up with, you know, thinking about transformational methodologies, really, that have kind of made the scope of doing ecology and doing science, you know, kind of bigger, wider scope. And, you know, since a lot of my background's in carbon cycling, I kind of ended up settling on the eddy covariance technique and measuring mm. carbon fluxes. And... I mean, there's a few people you could probably lay that, 
that really at you know I mean especially you know people kind of out or a lot of people out of Berkeley and some other places and you know it's built into you know like the FluxNet program and I guess to give a little background if people aren't familiar with this is um, eddy covariance is a method of using incredibly so it, it really relies on using what's called a three-dimensional sonic anemometer so it kind of looks like if you imagine these like hawk's claws, like talons on top of each other. And there's three probes at the top and three probes at the bottom. And what they're doing is they're shooting these signals back and forth. And what it allows you to do is through this really high speed signal to measure wind speed in three directions, or you know, multiple directions, I should say, um, at a very high speed. And then you combine that with a sensor that's also measuring um, you know, water and CO2 concentrations in the air. And what you can do if you do this fast enough, over a long enough period of time, you can actually measure the exchange of carbon between the land and the atmosphere, which is really difficult because it's these two gigantic kind of reservoirs, right, and this kind of itty-bitty flux in comparison between the two. So you have to have these really high-speed measurements for a really long period of time to measure. And, you know, being able to do this allows us to quantify carbon exchange over a really wide area. And so, because you put these, you know, you put this setup like on a, a eddy-covariance tower, and you jack it up kind of above the forest or above the wherever it is you're measuring, and you put enough of these out everywhere, and you're able to create this long-term measurement of carbon flux over between the land and the atmosphere that really allows us to look at you know changes in CO2 in the environment, and also changes the carbon fluxes. And you know, FluxNet, which is these kind of group of loosely arranged kind of confederate of you know, scientists and engineers and whatnot measuring at different places. It's been around for 20 years now, and it's been a huge, huge advancement in our understanding of carbon science, you know, kind of nationally and globally. It's been a huge contribution um, to, I think, ecology in general. So I would go with that, but I don't know where you would lay that million dollars, like where that who that check would be written to, because there's sure. clearly some advancements in the 60s that, you know, really kind of catalyzed that, and then kind of widespread you know, testing throughout the 80s and then kind of implementation in the late 80s and the 90s and, you know, up to, gosh, I mean, every university we work for, you know, has one of these towers now, so. Yeah, and it's expanded even beyond just those towers in that there's a lot of folks using these techniques within aquatic ecosystems, um, looking at water flow and oxygen, so trying to get also at that um, metabolism of an ecosystem using that and maybe coming off of benthic environments as well as using those eddy flux towers to measure co2 coming off of lakes and other water bodies as well and we're really just getting you know kind of mastering the methane flux at this point too and you know there's an article that came out i want to say from nature climate change this week showing that the our estimate of the methane flux is off by a fairly significant margin of greater than 60%. So basically there's more than we thought there was. The good news was that it wasn't increasing, but that we were just underestimating it to begin with. So mm. hopefully we get that down. The, the methane's really kind of interesting from a technological standpoint because the machine, the instrument that you need to do it, it relies on like the path length basically of the laser. And the methane one has this like ridiculous path length. So this instrument's like three or four foot tall and it's just we'll post pictures of it if you've never seen one like it's fascinating like all these other instruments are like tiny and then you have this like gigantic methane analyzer it's just sticking off the tower um, but that's gets into boring technological minutia that no one really 
cares about. There's like there's like twelve of us that care. So <laughs> it's, it's fine. <laughs> Grace, what do you got? Yeah, so mine was also um, a bit methods based and ties sort of back into what John was talking about. Um, but when I think about advances in ecosystem science and ecological science that have um, been able to help us really learn about mechanisms and function in ecosystems, as well as tie into some of those environmental problems like John was talking about, I think about whole ecosystem experiments and real pioneers of whole ecosystem experiments, um, such as the Hubbard Brook experiment, which was led by Likens and Borman, and of course there were many others involved. Um, the experimental lakes area up in Canada, led by David Schindler and others, as well as the experimental, experimental lakes area in northern Michigan and the Upper Peninsula, led by Steve Carpenter, Jim Kitchell, and others over the years. And so the advances that have come from being able to do these whole ecosystem experiments and actually taking an experiment up to the ecosystem scale have been really fundamental in our understanding of things like nutrient limitation in aquatic ecosystems or acid rain impacts on forests. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that that kind of ties together um, a bit of what both Jeff and I were thinking about in terms of our, our criteria. I'm going to throw yeah. this actually out on, I'm going to throw this on Twitter right now. What are you throwing at? Just the, the idea of the Nobel Prize in ecology. If there were one, what would you go with? Obviously, we won't have these results in real time. <laughs> <laughs> We can check back in towards the end of this podcast and see if anyone's responded or talk about it next time. Yeah, one thing that you guys also got me thinking about is that, you know, having not had really a, you know, enormously publicized field-wide type of prize um, like a Nobel, there's a huge backlog of, you know, potentially deserving um, people and, and research groups and ideas. Um, I don't know. For, for what it's worth, that seems like, you know, a, a challenge worth thinking about. It's maybe like, a, you know, like the Hall of Fame. Like you need like a legacy and, you know, a legacy classification <laughs> to a current classification. So can we then get into debates about whether like longevity is kind of an argument or maybe like a peak performance period? That would be fun. Like you do, like with baseball, you're like, well, this guy for like five years, you know, was really awesome, but then this other guy, like twenty years, I'm just, that could be fun. Yeah, well, I mean, this could actually really have a have a big effect on the types of discoveries that are seen as important. Like the, you know, the people in the legacy class would be tend to be people, at least, maybe not who necessarily had a really long career but came up with an idea that uh or a you know a really elegant study or concept that has moved the field in a long-term long-standing way whereas a person in you know sort of a, a nearer um a contemporary class uh, might have come up with an idea that seems really important right now um, but doesn't have the benefit of hindsight. No, I like it. I think that's a good point. And it's definitely something. I don't know, man. Maybe it's good, though. Like, maybe it's good we don't have one. <laughs> or like a, you know, like a coalesced prize. I mean, there are definitely, especially ESA gives out several prizes. AGU gives out a bunch of medals and everything. Yeah, there are a number of society-level prizes that are available. But are 
are there the recognition oh, is not the same as say a Nobel Prize, which is really um, more global in recognition. Although there are a few, I'm, I'm not sure. I know there's one called the Swedish Water Prize, which is also oh. given by the Swedish Academy of Sciences, I believe, which is sort of considered the top prize in water. But um, is there something similar that you're familiar with for terrestrial systems, or perhaps not? Not that I'm aware of. We could just do like economics did and kind of just make up our own thing and call it the Nobel Prize because they're not really part of the Nobel Committee. It's actually like a separate entity. So we could just do that. Sounds good to me. We should probably create one for excellence in uh, ecology podcasts by early career scientists. <laughs> yeah, Joe makes a good point. We need money to get that started. <laughs> so the endowment would have to be to give away a million dollars, but it'd be pretty severe. But hey, if I win the Powerball, maybe that'll be my contribution. To do you science. remember when the Powerball was open for like a billion dollars, and we were always floating around those ideas of what we would do as far as funding our own center? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty much what I would do. Is I would fund my own private. <laughs> I used to center. when I would drive around rural Virginia, I would see these huge plots of land, like a thousand acres for sale, and I'd be like, "Hmm, there's a lake, there's a river. Yeah, we can make this one work. Just need to win that money." <laughs> For the record, I doubt any of us have played the lottery for, you know, more than $2 <laughs> in the last two decades, so. I I buy a scratch ticket maybe once a year, like a dollar scratch ticket, because I'm like, eh, 60 cents of that will go to the schools. What's the big deal? I've never won anything. My mom plays all the time, which really isn't that surprising, I guess. Has she had great success at that? No. <laughs> Not at all. She just does scratch tickets, too. I don't think any of us... I don't even know how the Powerball even works. I'm sure you just show up and, like, you buy a ticket, but... I don't know. I see... You see the scratch, like, the bubble sheets in the yeah, store? I, I need to investigate this. Yeah, so the Powerball, you can buy, like, a random ticket, or you can um, ask for specific numbers. I guess that's what the bubble sheet is for. Um, but, but yeah, I bought, like, two tickets when it was Whoa. over a billion, and... Obviously didn't win anything because you're I'm secretly hoarding because money, you still talk you? to us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you over my private jet. Revisiting the conversation, we'll wrap up from next week since we, um, which was a really good conversation. It just ended up going really long, which is fine. It's totally cool. So we were talking about this paper. From 2013, scrolling up to get the title, Identification of 100 Fundamental Ecological Questions. And this was published in the Journal of Ecology, Sutherland et al. And so we had brought up some of the questions about spatial variance and our spatial heterogeneity and some stuff about publication bias as well. Wanted to keep going in this. I think, John, either you or Grace were up next about something you wanted to bring up, but where do you. I think it was John. I thought I brought up the publication bias thing, but maybe. Um, okay. Sure. I've got another idea, though. Um, yeah. Another question that I like. Um, what unexploited theories used by other disciplines could inform ecology and vice versa? Ooh, I like that one. I didn't notice that one before. Do you have any initial thoughts? I think what really intrigued me about this question in particular was vice versa, right? Like, we have borrowed a lot of theories from other disciplines um, we've you know 
seen how, for example, you know how um, statistical or statistical models from physics um, apply to ecological systems in in a number of different ways. Um, but ecology is really it's growing as a science, still you know much younger than um, physics and mathematics and even some other areas of uh, of biology. Uh, but yeah, it intrigues me that maybe that there are some emerging theories or modifications of theories made by ecology that can um, that can inform other disciplines. Any thoughts on what some of those might be? That's a tough question. Yeah, it's it is a tough question, um, especially honestly, you know, not knowing fully the history of all of the theories that we use in ecology. Um, one example of an idea from ecology that has bled over into other disciplines, though, is is the Ali effect. Um, that being the idea that um, at low population densities, that there's a positive effect of increasing density on per capita fitness. And I've seen, um, well, let me say that a huge portion of our understanding of that phenomenon comes from uh, from theory. And in math, people are applying this type of I- idea where you get you know, some depression in some rate at low densities of some other variable to other different contexts, which I thought was really, uh, really kind of interesting because it's something that has developed in the context of aggregations of animals and how um, cooperative behaviors among them uh, can improve the fitness of individuals in the group. Hmm. So I think this is a real minor thing, but I remember it being something when I came across that I was really excited about was just um, exploration of like change point analysis techniques for looking at time series data. And you see some of this stuff being used, like really high speed things and like network analysis. And a lot of times you'll see it in industry, uh, people working with websites, like ways to address, you know, um, when, um, I'm trying to think of the word, when you have like huge spikes in web traffic for whatever reason. You can use kind of these like sensing technologies to be able to detect these changes very quickly and apply them to, you know, kind of addressing whatever security or server issues that you have. So some of these advanced mathematical things that I personally don't completely understand, I think would be something kind of in that. And it's, you know, it's, it's already kind of in and around the fringes anyway, and just kind of creeping up to more widespread use, especially when you get into like Bayesian analysis of these techniques and man, you know, methods to do this and I think that'll be an interesting thing, especially when you have you know, some of these sensors that we have now that can measure things at just these ridiculous high speeds, kind of like what I was talking about before. Or that's yeah, already definitely. widespread and I just don't know about it. So it could be. Well, sort of following along those lines, too, thinking about those different sort of analyses that are being brought into environmental studies, there's um, a lot of different models and analyses that are built for predicting weather forecasts. And in particular, one that I've been reading a lot more about are ensemble Kalman filters and just different Kalman filters in general and ways of um, incorporating data as they become available into your model and then predicting the next step ahead and then using data to correct that prediction, essentially, as you move forward. 
um, which is something that like your GPS does when you're going, um, when you're walking along and it's trying to, it knows your direction and how fast you're moving and so it makes a prediction of where you're going to be the next time before the satellite pings and then corrects that position and such. And so these are sorts of things that are getting incorporated and moved into ecological systems as well because one thing that we discussed in the last episode was the need for prediction and the direction that ecology is taking towards being predictive and this is one way that um, some folks are moving in trying to do that and trying to predict in these very complicated complicated and complex ecosystems, how different things like, say, carbon dynamics um, will be going in the future using the data that's available now, which I'm, I think I'm is really a pretty cool application. I'm really excited in general about the possible kind of citizen science contributions, one that are kind of already happening, like just, you know, with us being able to have cell phones and just carry them around, or, you know, I should say smartphones and having this computing power around, like you see some of this like phenology networks for people you know, out running or taking pictures of, uh, you know, kind of plants, leaves, general phenology stuff, but also kind of wildlife and contributing that to large databases. I'm excited to see how much that can possibly contribute, not only from an outreach standpoint, but also just a sheer data collection uh, kind of boom. And so I think that would be something, too. It's not really a theory. It doesn't really fit with the thing. But when you're talking emerging technologies, anything that makes it easier, faster, more powerful, it's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing we use when we're um, examining, looking at regime shifts in ecosystems and trying to predict when a regime shift is going to occur, so you look for early warning indicators of that regime shift, is actually um, a lot of just basic system theory and how systems act. And so these early warning indicators of regime shifts are not just seen in ecosystems, they're seen in political systems, economic systems. Um, they've been observed before someone um, has a bipolar episode um, and all sorts of different, um, different types of systems and regime shifts that occur. So that's something that people are working on this question in like a number of different parallel fields and reaching across and trying to understand what different fields and what different types of systems are seeing to better understand this as a whole. That's interesting. It sounds like something that you know, maybe has emerged in a few different areas relatively simultaneously, uh, and regime shifts and ecosystems seem one you know, fairly prominent uh, example, but one of many examples of how this theory is applicable. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to be able to use it to predict before the stock market was going to fluctuate wildly. <laughs> or before my lake was going to have a large harmful aqua bloom. We, we need a recurring segment on here where we're forced to make predictions or forecast about things that don't matter. And then we need to keep a, like a long-running tab of that, <laughs> like some type of scoreboard or something, and see how we all do. Isn't that just our fantasy football draft? Our yeah, fantasy football. Statistical? Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll start with, with World Series predictions at the end of this, just because that's pretty much all that I do in October anyway, because like field work's over, <laughs> so I just kind of hang out and watch baseball. All the baseball that I missed... You know, previously during the summer, so um, okay. I I know this is in here, and this is the one that I wanted to bring up, and I'm having trouble finding it now. Um, but it was related to diversity, biodiversity in general. It was more of a broad question that I have that I'm not sure is really codified in here. So just summing up the whole section on community and diversity from 38 to 57. Does biodiversity matter? I think, well, 
I think it depends on your perspective and how you define biodiversity. I mean, I, I think that you can, if you're taking a, you know, a certain ethical position on the word matter, um, then, you know, I, I think that many people um, would argue that, you know, yes, you know, preserving um, species that, uh, you know, that exists now uh, is an important Okay, that's, I think that's a good syntextual, is that a word, syntextual? Syntextual point. So let me rephrase that. How should we begin to talk about diversity? In what terms? Like how should we? Well, how should we integrate that um, into our science? Like I'm thinking now, we had uh, we were looking at some data yesterday in lab, and the the bulk of it was really looking at forest productivity versus light use, and our, um, and then somebody was throwing it up against some diversity metrics. And it's kind of like all noise, right? And just using kind of like a Shannon diversity index, which is, you know, was a like relationship of the like, species richness to abundance or something. I should probably be able to explain that more adequately. But in some cases, I think when you get into some of the ecological data, looking at that, I feel like we want to make these assumptions and we, or we want to build on these assumptions that diversity matters in all contexts. And I'm not sure if, if species diversity is necessarily the thing to look at, and maybe this is my own bias, but thinking more along the lines of some type of, I don't know, structural diversity or trait diversity, which I think there's some mentions in here too, something about, you know, how does trait diversity impact function. But I think if it's, we need to move beyond just species diversity but I'm not sure I really have an idea about that. I mean, I generally, like, my kind of a priori on this is most of the time diversity doesn't matter, broadly speaking. But well, I'm totally open to thoughts on that. I think diversity matters when it depends on what you're comparing it to or what the matters portion is. So if you're talking about a specific ecosystem function, perhaps in a grassland for biomass production, diversity does matter. But I think what's really key and what a lot of these experiments have shown is it's very dependent on the species that are there or their function or what traits that they have. And it's not necessarily that it's species A plus species B, but it's this exact species A with this type of species B. Well, I mean, yeah, because like, the classic example is if you clear-cut a forest, you actually increase species diversity because of what comes after it. And so by that argument, if diversity is what you matter, you know, care about, you should clear-cut all the forests. I mean, that's obviously right. like a you know, simplification of the oversimplification. But I think a better acknowledgement or maybe some real thoughtful consideration about what it is like, we're really thinking about there. Do you think that that's more? Do you think that that's more of a problem of our science or of how we communicate science you know, with each other and with the public? Because I mean, there there are many many different ways of measuring diversity and measuring whether diversity matters, and you know maybe maybe a problem here isn't so much. Um, 
you know, this kind of big picture question, but, you know, what are the nitty gritty details of what we're actually measuring um, and how we, you know, relate it to outcomes that we're interested in. So you thinking, I guess I'm trying to, I'm creating a moment we're going to edit out because I lost my train of thought. So. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think, I think what I'm, what I'm saying is like both, both of you in the examples that you brought up had kind of particular response variables in mind. You know, one was biomass. Another one I think was Jeff um, structural complexity of the forest. Um, and, you know, talked about particular ways of measuring diversity. Um, you know, it, it, I guess it's something that we kind of lump a lot of different things under, but the outcome could be very different depending on whether you mean, you know, a count of the number of different species or... Um, you know, some kind of phylogenetic, you know, diversity, like the number of different lineages um, or, you know, some kind of number of different traits. One thing that could be interesting and really informative is, you know, understanding, you know, how do, you know, traits line up with phylogeny? Um, that's not something that really either of us study, um, but I think it's a question that um, is important in ecology and evolution, and is kind of underlying. That shouldn't some of stop us discussion. from hand waving wildly, though. I think that's totally fair game. No, I, no, I, I agree. I, I kind of think of like when people use plant functional types or PFTs, and if you look at Arctic studies, you'll see them range from maybe a study or a modeling exercise that uses three or four PFTs and they'll throw every like shrubs as one PFT. And then you'll see another that'll have like 28 of them. And within the shrub category, they'll have, you know, like prostrate or prostate, no prostrate, prostate's the other thing, like prostrate dwarf deciduous shrubs or prostrate dwarf coniferous shrubs, upright coniferous, you know, have like all these other classifications. And so at that point, you know, when you're starting to talk about prostate shrubs, um, which obviously <laughs> Sorry. are totally different, then I don't know, like, you know, like that becomes kind of arbitrary, but I think it may, you know, if done well, I guess it's kind of useful. I guess it, what I would say is that you would need some really careful consideration about what it is that you're testing and what it is that you're studying and why you're doing it in order to be able to back up that claim of whatever it is, whether it's the diversity of species or diversity of functional types or, you know, traits or something. But, yeah, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Grace. Sorry. No, I, I, I it was going to make a similar point, and along with what John was saying, I, it, it is in relation to the response variable or what variable of interest, and there are a number of different ways to quantify or couch what diversity is, and, and we've brought a lot of these up, right? But um, I think ultimately there needs to be, I I would be interested in knowing or trying to understand, in some instances, there's got to be cases where the ecosystem function just isn't responsive to diversity. It's a presence absence, Mm -hmm. um, perhaps. 
Um, but there's a lot of instances where it is very responsive to diversity and we probably don't understand all the nuances of that or what level of diversity. Um, but I think, I guess, from my bias and my perspective is, um, and the things that I think about, I think functional diversity is probably a really useful thing and traits and trying to understand traits um, and how those influence ecosystem function is a really useful thing to think about and often ignored, at least in my own work. Yeah, I think I think we're all really interested in mechanisms as scientists, as just individual people, but also um, as a field. This is where ecology, I think, is going is, um, you know, maybe in the past phenomenological types of relationships were uh, were good enough. But I think, you know, now they're not, especially as there are really fundamental changes to, you know, climate and um you know other aspects of ecosystems that um that we really want to we want to know how they work um and as we talked about before uh in in our last episode if you understand mechanism then that has a lot more predictive power than um maybe just knowing you know two variables are related approximately linearly um and so I, th- I think this, you know, trait-based framework is really attractive um, for getting at that. Of course, then you have to figure out what traits are important. But um, I think that's where, you know, maybe ecology operating at different scales um, in this, you know, hierarchy from, you know, genes through ecosystems um, can, really, um, can really benefit really integrating across those. Yeah, and I think trait-based models, at least in lim- in limnology, is something that's getting a little bit more attention these days. I don't know about um, for your guys' fields, but that's something that, uh, tr- in, again, trying to get at this predicting ecosystem function, what works better, an ecosystem model that's based on mechanism that was parameterized for a region, or a trait-based model? Is that more universal? Can you get a better spatial and temporal resolution with a trait-based model? And there have been some interesting papers, I'm thinking of one by um, Zwart et al. in Ecology in 2015 in particular, that really got at this. And that phytoplankton traits actually did a better job of predicting ecosystem function, the function being gross primary production, than um, mechanistic models did, or other um, statistical models. So, And that was for greater than a 1,000 lakes, so it was a really large data set. It's a lot of lakes. Yeah. Gee, can can you underst- explain a little bit um, the distinction that you use between a trait-based model and a mechanistic model? Um, so model? instead of my... Because to yeah. me... Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I think I was cutting you off. Um, the, so a trait-based being... Uh, <laughs> um, give me a second. I'm reading something, so let's edit this part out too. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I guess to me, I think of trait-based and mechanistic as being sort of, you know, two sides of the same coin. I guess it's possible to have a mechanistic model that simplifies traits in certain ways, um, but but I just I just think of traits as being very linked to mechanisms mm. personally. Yeah, um, so mechanistic was probably a little bit of a a misstatement there by me, but so I guess thinking about like trait-based, looking at the individual species of the functional groups that are there and how they respond to certain environmental, so 
um, you know, you have this level of light or this temperature or something like that, and this is the production that you're going to get versus basing it solely on um, environmental variables like total phosphorus and light and things like that for what you're going to get for your production. So using those relationships between environmental variables and ecosystem function. So, th so those more relationship-based models. So I did, I did a uh, misspeak there in saying mechanism-based. It's all good. That was really Thanks good. for the clarification. We should do, we should do a series of, of shows maybe on explaining stuff, which would just be helpful for me because then I'll have you guys explain stuff to me that I'll understand better that I have no idea what it is. Or I'll just keep saying wrong things and John can explain it to both of us. <laughs> <laughs> Which, let's just be real, that's how this relationship has gone for the past six years. Hey, you're the one with a faculty job. Come on. You must be doing something. Maybe right I'm just a better not. bullshitter. Yeah. No, you have the hard skills and the soft skills. That's what it is. I'm just willing to throw things out there, see if anybody calls me on it. If they don't, I'll just put it out there. <laughs> All right, do we want to do one more? Grace, do you have one? Uh, well, the one that I wanted to discuss was actually talking about sort of this trait-based stuff, so we've, we've really gotten um, into that a bit here. Did you have another one, Jeff? Do you have uh, any? No, I just had a question uh, about this. I was going to say, if you had to devote your entire career to the pursuit of one of these questions, which one are you picking? I'm going to choose one that aligns really closely with <laughs> what I go. already study. So That's an easy question. No, so the, the question is, do different demographic rates vary predictably over different spatial scales, and how do they then combine to influence spatiotemporal population dynamics? And that's really close to some of the work that I already do. Um, and so that's sort of a, a natural um, for me to go to. No, I would do the same so it's thing. Kind of cheating. I would go with the one about how does spatial structure influence ecosystem function and how do we integrate across scales. So, yeah, I think it's... Yeah, and similarly, I would go with which factors and mechanisms determine the resilience of ecosystems to external perturbations and how do we measure resilience. Really, this is just a check, I guess, to see that we're kind of within the zeitgeist of ecology. Like if we had went with, if we couldn't identify one from the hundred list here, we should probably reevaluate what exactly we're doing. And either we're really super ahead of the curve or we're just way off base. Like if you wanted to devote your life to like cryptozoology or something, which I don't want to dismiss. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe. Just for a fun exercise, what about one, what about a question that's not kind of directly in your current area of research that... Oh you think would be really intriguing or I would have to go with something of the community or population based ones but I'm not sure what it is and I think it's just because I don't know as much about that and I think there's some uh, some synergy to use a corporate buzz term across that was kind of what I already do anyway and you know I work with some community ecologists now and they it's cool like they just kind of think about things in a completely different way than, than I do, and so I think that's good. There's some feedback there. Yeah, community yeah. ecology is hard. It's a recurring <laughs> theme here. <laughs> it is. Oh, I don't know. There's so many 
cool questions here. I guess uh, one of them, what's the key determinant of the future magnitude of marine and terrestrial carbon sinks? And I would just put in there also inland water carbon sinks. Um, because we're actually creating inland waters through reservoirs and such more than we're creating marine or terrestrial ecosystems. Um, but I, man, if we could figure out what actually controls carbon burial and carbon processing in these sinks and try to understand that across the different scales and the different biomes, I think that'd be really key. I think it's interesting that the word urban only occurs one time in this entire article, and it's the very last section in concluding remarks about the work in, or, you know, work in protected areas as well as farmland, post-industrial landscapes, and the, you know, urban environment, talking about how, you know, answering these questions concerning these, you know, restoration management and government policy. So there's really no addressing of urban ecology in a direct manner in this. And I think... You know, given the size of the cities that we have and increasing kind of movement towards those cities, especially in areas outside of the U.S., like when you're talking like, you know, kind of Africa and the developing world, and just kind of the, if you think of like the size of the surrounding area that is impacted by those cities, I think that's definitely an area that should be more in here that's not. And, you know, it's kind of a growing area as well, too. Like you've seen in kind of a, the burgeoning urban ecology movement in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Peter Groffman just spoke at KU. Um, he's a obviously important person. Yeah, he was up area. at UMBS this summer too. So I think that's an oversight. Around. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's an oversight not to give greater weight to um, a couple coupled human natural systems and urban ecology and agroecology. Um, cause you're right. Those are, those are huge things. And even though they might have a, a certainly more applied character in some ways, you know, you're really talking about fundamental ecological processes underlying them. Um, we're just, you know, modifying them maybe in funnier ways than if we go out into a, you know, pristine wilderness to study moths or how trees grow or, whether fish are made of trees. Exactly. So I think obviously, I think we would all agree that there's both benefit in studying in pristine systems and there's benefit in studying in impacted systems. Um, but what do you think some of the benefits are of working in both of those types of systems or what sort of questions should we be getting at? Or should we just all be working in impacted systems? <laughs> so we can call this in defense of pristine systems. In defense of pristine systems? Oh gosh, there was a study a while back about where we actually do ecology and to see if it was actually biased towards pristine systems. And I don't think it was. I think it was that we actually kind of really underestimate how, how pristine of a system that we actually work in. But when you look globally, the, you know, it was basically the tropics were the area that we knew the least about. But if you just kind of look at a more granular le level of just kind of like the Europe and the U.S., if I remember correctly, I need to go find this. It was in Frontiers. That it was, we were doing an okay job. Like there was definitely areas we could improve on, but we weren't necessarily biasing things towards more pristine environments. Yeah. I, so I think though, if if I remember the article that you're referencing right now, but, properly. But, 
A question that I had from it is, is pristine at what scale, right? Like we don't tend to do ecology in, you know, people's yards, but that's a huge amount of, you know, the land surface of a developed nation. Um, and so, you know, we might do it in a, you know, semi-natural area, a hundred meters from a yard, but, you know, there, there's still an issue of scale there. That natural area, um, a hundred meters away might have, you know, different, um, different species of, you know, plants and microbes and insects and, um, mammals and all kinds of things that are influencing the, the, you know, community and ecosystem and population processes occurring in that landscape in a different way than what's going on in, in someone's yard. So I, I think that there's, um, there's still a lot of questions about how, um, how, you know, human impacted or human managed systems are different from a more pristine, uh, ecosystem and then, you know, flows between those. So there was, Oh, so what, first of all, one of my favorite, uh, trivia facts, uh, that's super dumb. The area in the United States that is covered with manicured lawns is equivalent to an area the size of the state of Michigan, and which is a lot. And then two, you're talking about people's lawns. There actually was a really great presentation at ESA this year. Um, I believe it was Carly Zeter from the University of Wisconsin who literally went out and looked at soil organic matter in people's yards and across the city of Madison and had like this ridiculous sample size, like five or 6,000 or something. And it showed huge differences between what was going on in yards versus what was going on in other more, you know, quote unquote, pristine areas versus other developed areas of the city. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's really cool. I think it's something to consider. Yeah, I think, and this sort of this conversation has just made me wonder, maybe pristine versus impacted is kind of a false dichotomy. I mean, one of the things we love to say in ecology, right, is it's a continuum. Um, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it is, or maybe it's just you're doing work where you're at, and there's pretty much, to some degree, human influence almost everywhere that you're working. Yeah, it's, you know, the Anthropocene now, supposedly, maybe. Yeah, and so I think officially it was declared that a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, they had they. There was a committee. They held a meeting. They decided. Um, <laughs> who who picks the committee for that? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I want to be on that committee. I want to be on that. I committee. mean, I don't generally want to be on that many committees, but. I wonder if this is the first geological era that's been voted on. <laughs> I mean, maybe not. By default. Well, I guess the first one that's been voted on. Yeah, it must be. Were actually in it, right? I don't know if we had that organization 10,000 years ago. You don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not dubious. Still anyone out. All right. So do we have any closing thoughts on the 100 questions in ecology? Well, I think this is a really useful exercise. An exercise like these that are done in different disciplines can be a really good way to look at the state of where your field is and where you are moving forward. Um, and I guess as a really career person, I find them really useful because it gives me an idea of places maybe I should think about going with my work. 
I think, I, think I would definitely, I would like at some point to teach like a history of ecology class, like kind of through the research and through the people and the scientists. And I think this paper would be a really good component to throw in at the end. You know, kind of like the final week of the semester. If you get an idea of kind of where everything is, where everything, you know, where we've been to, to talk about, you know, where we're going. So I definitely like it. I think it's really good. And I think there's probably some supplementary stuff, some other things that you could throw with it that would be useful as well. John, do you have any thoughts? <laughs> I do. I, I think this is a great a great paper. Um, I think it's a great exercise in you know in any field for just the reasons that you mentioned. Um, I think that ecology has already changed a lot since 2013. Um, and you know one of the one of the things that I thought of, you know, looking at these papers or looking at these questions is that we already have for certain cases and certain systems answers to a lot of these questions. And you know, one of the one of the things that I think is gonna be really important moving forward is uh, you know, is synthesizing those papers that answer these questions and figuring out what are the sub-questions to these hundred that haven't been answered yet or have been answered in only a few limited ways uh, that we can <clears throat> then uh, then start to fill those knowledge gaps. I like it, guys. I like it. So, do you guys have anything... We'll close on, before I ask you forecast questions, I got two now, but do you guys have anything that you've read, seen, listened to, heard, and you want to share with the world that you think is particularly awesome? At the risk of uh, promoting other uh, ecology blogs, uh, there's a really interesting post um, to me uh, in Dynamic Ecology about mathematical constraints on ecology and uh, it's the first in a series uh, that Jeremy Fox has planned um, and maybe other people too I don't know if he's getting people to, to guess into that but um, that's something I think is, is really cool and I'm looking forward to to seeing more in that series so hopefully people check those out yeah, and uh, recently I read a um, essay by the president of the Society for Freshwater Science Emily Bernhardt, um, who was talking about the importance of being kind in science and that kindness and respect are really important. So I think there's a, a phrase that's been going around a lot on social media. And sorry, I don't know the original attribution, but it's the we're all smart here. Distinguish yourself by being kind um, and the importance of that in having respectful and kind discourse in our fields. And that's really a key to inclusion. So uh, we'll post that on the website as well. You can take a look at that. It's a pretty interesting essay. I totally saw that you had posted that this morning, and I was like, Grace completely stole the one that I was going to mention. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. So, I, well, uh, great minds think alike. Um, 
I wrote a piece this week for Plus Ecology blog, but what the part that I want to mention is the part that I cited in there because I don't, I don't really care. You can read what I wrote or not; it doesn't matter. It's really just a puff piece on how leaves work and like why they change colors and kind of the economic I thought it was, psychology of that. I thought it was really interesting, Jeff. I, as a person who hasn't thought about this, I've always wondered why leaves change daylight. Very interesting. Well, yeah, and, yeah I, I'm not one to like tout what I wrote, but what I want to tout is there's a reference to the Great Smoky Mountains site that they have in there where they built a fall foliage prediction map that's interactive. And I, I one, love, really love well-done visuals and well-done visuals that are also interactive. Like, that's straight to my heart right there. So I'll put up a post on that or put a link to that, and you can kind of play with it and look at kind of the peak days and see where you know the fall foliage is going to be the most prominent. I know I'm probably stupidly going backpacking this weekend in Dolly Sod's Wilderness in West Virginia, and where it's predicted to be like 20 degrees, I think. <laughs> so it's going to be it's going to be a nice uh, nice weekend out there as far as seeing the the leaves. So I'm kind of excited. Hopefully, hopefully the hurricane stays away from us. But that being said, do you know anyone in the southeast or in Florida in particular who be safe <laughs> and hope you guys are all right. Yes. So yeah, don't want to, we, we want to mention particular names of people we know. I know we all have friends, family and loved ones in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina and you know hope that they are all safe. Alright, are you guys ready for predictions? I'm gonna ask you these questions yes. and then we'll keep track of them and see if uh, who gets one right? All right. The first one's a marginally serious one. So so far, there have been Nobel prizes awarded in physics, chemistry, and physiology this year, and the Peace Prize today. There are still literature and eh, economics. Do you think a woman wins a Nobel prize this year? Yes. I believe a woman will win a Nobel Prize this year. I have no basis for that. I just desperately want it to be true. So far, all dudes. John, will a woman win either the Nobel Prize in Literature or... Actually, it's called the... God, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. The Sevierges Riksbach Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel. Will a woman win either of those awards? I'm going to go... Yes, but it's not going to be solo. It's going to be part of a team with economics. And I have no factual basis for that. I'm there is literally guessing. an ad next to this that says Nobel Women, and not a single woman is on this so far. I'm going to go with I hope so, but I don't think so. So I'm going to go with no. All right, we've run the gamut. We run that, yeah. And the, also, from like a game theory perspective, if you guys are both going yes, it makes sense for me to go no. <laughs> Yeah, I almost went no just for that reason, but I figured I'd be bold and All right, next one. Dangerously. World Series predictions. In the AL right now, we have the Indians, the Red Sox, the Rangers, and the Blue Jays. Who makes it to the World Series? Red Sox. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm going Red Sox, too. Boo. I'm going Blue Jays. <laughs> yeah, I don't really like them, but they just smoked the Rangers, so. All right, NL. Dodgers, Giants, Cubs. And someone else. I actually don't know who else is in the NL. I don't watch NL baseball. <laughs> Who's in the NLDS? Uh, it is the Nationals. The All right, so Nationals, Dodgers, Cubs, Giants. It is an even year. And the Giants have I'm, won in 2014, 2012, and 2010. I'm going Cubbies. 
I'm going Giants. I'm going Cubs as well. But I figured you would. That was my prediction, I think, you know, on Facebook, game too, theory. was Red Sox over the Cubs in seven, and they make them cry. So... <laughs> But anyway, I'm a, no, it's, it's what it is. All right, do you have anything else? No. Excellent. All right, so now we're good. If you're listening, send us an email. Our email is majorrevisionsshow at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at majorrevisions.weebly.com. That's W E E B L Y. And we're also on Twitter at major underscore revisions. Cool. And we want to All hear right. what you think about the show, but we also want, if you have any show suggestions or things to talk about. Yeah, suggestions, questions, or anything, that would be awesome. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. Everybody have a good day. Bye.